This morning our text from John's Gospel has already been read. This morning I am going to focus on the subject of truth. We must ask ourselves how important is truth to us. In John chapter 18, as Jesus has been placed before Pilate, Jesus said in John chapter 18 and verse 37 that He had come into the world that He would bear witness to the truth. And then Jesus said, Everyone who is of the truth hears My voice. Just as Jesus had once said that they that are My sheep hear My voice, and I call unto them, and they come unto Me, and I give unto them eternal life. And they come because they are His sheep, and those that were in a similar Way those that are of the truth come unto Him. We are characterized as believers in Christ as a people that are of the truth. Pilate didn't take it that way. Pilate said to Jesus, sarcastically, mockingly, what is truth? It's a good question. Matter of fact, I just happen to have a few definitions for you as to what truth is this morning. Truth. Verified or indisputable fact. Truth refers to the actual state of a matter. Truth is that which conforms with reality. It's fact. Just the facts, please. Theologians and philosophers in the past have spoken of true truth. That simply means it is true because it's true. And God's truth is as fixed and as factual as natural law. For example, you may not like the fact that gravity exists. You may desire to defy gravity by going to the edge of a cliff and say, I despise gravity. I hate it so much. I'm going to defy it. And you jump off the cliff. Doesn't matter if you defy it or not. You're going to splatter because there are natural laws in effect. And the law of God and the truth of God is just as fixed. You can deny it, or you can think it is something that is precious. Turn with me to the book of Genesis. And again this morning, uh, you know I normally uh, preach more expositorily, but today we're on, on a topic, the topic of truth. And this battle for truth has always been on this earth. Even before the fall, 
Satan initiated this battle. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the battle in the very early beginnings of will the Word of God be esteemed or will human reasoning take the place of what God has said? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? You see, the serpent was trying to arouse doubts in the heart of Eve. If you look at Genesis chapter 2 and verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat. Now look at the two words every. You see, when God gave the command, it was a command of plenty. Look around you, Adam. Look around you. From every tree you may freely eat. But Satan takes that word and he says, Shall you not eat of every tree? Don't you see, Eve, that you are being restricted by what God has said to you? Don't you understand that God is withholding something from you that is perfectly good? You see, this is the reasoning that Satan gives to Eve. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, because that's what God has said. But of the fruit... So in other words, I don't think Eve was completely deceived here. She sort of corrects the evil one. But see, you see Satan, it's only the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden that God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it. God didn't say anything about touching it. Or lest you will die. And then the serpent says, in absolute defiance of what God had said, you will not surely die. Eve, use your reasoning. Look around. Look at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's just like any other tree. Look at that tree. For God knows in the day that you eat of it. You see, God didn't tell you the whole truth. This is what you need to learn from me. In the day that you eat it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The sad thing about this is it was a half-truth. Because after they sinned against God, yes, they knew good and evil. Because immediately they were very conscious, conscious of the fact that they had sinned. But they also were on the road to death because they had defied the Word of God. You see, they had put the explicit, clear, perfect Word of God aside to look at what they saw. And they appealed to the voice of the evil one and to the voice of what they saw and they began to reason. This is logical, what the serpent is saying. 
for they were deceived. And they shunned the truth of God and the rest is history. A whole world plunged into sin. Francis Schaeffer used to say that all truth is God's truth. If someone says something that's just true, whether they're an atheist, whether they're a pagan, whether they're Jewish, whether they're a Muslim, whether they worship Buddha, or whether they're evangelical or Christian, if they say something is true, then that truth can be ultimately go back to the source of all truth. The Lord God who is the, the God of all truth. Very interestingly, decades ago, Francis Schaeffer also had this to say and how applicable it is today, three or four decades later. Today, not only in philosophy, but in politics, government, and in individual morality, our generation sees solutions in terms of synthesis and not in absolutes. Did you get that? We see, we try to ascertain truth now by, by combining one thing with another thing. And it, it's almost uh, laughable the way we do it. We talked this morning in Sunday school. Today, you can be a man and you cannot be a man. You can be a woman and not be a woman. Some would say it's okay to be sexually active outside of marriage as long as you really love one another. Today on the political scene, we're talking about the border situation. One party says that there is a crisis on the border, but there's not really a crisis on the border, you see. We have it both ways. We can go on and on and on. Lying is a sin. Yes, it's oh yes, but it's a sin, but it's okay if everybody benefits from a little white lie and no one is hurt. Yes, integrity in business is good. It's right. But you know, to cook the books a little bit is okay. Everybody does. It's no big deal. So you see, we we, we take these varying viewpoints and, and, and we bring them together to try to ascertain what is truth. You see, when there's no absolutes in a society, what do you have? You have absolute chaos. If, you don't, if there's nothing that is absolutely true, then what's the alternative? Is, is uh, what one particular human being says, well, is that 75% true or is that 25% true? And even if it's 99% true, that means it's 1% false. How do you live like that? Well, you see the chaos that we have today. I rejoice as children of God that we have the truth of God. We don't try to syncretize this. And Francis Schaeffer goes on to say that when we do this in a particular society, when this happens, truth, as people have always thought of truth, has died. We have no platform for rationale at all. So when we, even in the church, are influenced by such, we we suffer from it. When we play when we play fast and loose with the truth, trouble, chaos, darkness, lack of clarity, and folks simply things don't work. 
They don't work in the home. They don't work in business. They don't work in politics. And they don't work in theology either. So today we need to have an understanding of what is truth. We as believers need to love the truth. Again, what was Pilate's words? Very typical of someone that was raised in in, uh, a Greek philosophy where wisdom was always debated, the logos, the understanding, what is truth. Uh, It was the topic of the day. We've talked about this before. I won't go into the length. But you know... Basically, in Greek, the Greco-Roman society, they had to come to the conclusion that there are no absolute truths. (laughs) So, no doubt, uh, when Jesus said that He had come to preach the truth, Pilate mockingly said, what is truth? But for the believer, we cherish the truth because we have a sureness from God. By the way, that's why we're studying the nature of Holy Scripture in the first hour. The importance of the truth. Jesus' final prayers on this earth before He ascended into heaven was that, that God's people, the disciples, would be sanctified by the truth that comes from the Father. And then He prayed to the Father, Father, Your Word is truth. By the way, very interestingly, John was so concerned with the truth, the Apostle John. Did you know that Apostle John mentions the word truth 47 times in his gospel and in the epistles? Whereas Luke only mentions it five times, Matthew and Mark three. But John was so concerned that for the truth and for the light as well, John would say. Paul said in Colossians, as he refers to the gospel as the word of truth. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Amen. If you're a child of God, you've heard the gospel. That we are sinners, that we are lost apart from Christ. That Christ laid down His life, provided the perfect sacrifice for us. Through repentance and belief in that truth, we can be saved and we can be forgiven of our sins. And when we do that, we're at, we are, receive a glorious freedom from God. We're no longer in the bondage of sin. So we rejoice in that truth that has set us free. James says that we have been brought forth by the Word of truth. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. We've been regenerated because we've heard the truth of God's Word and He enlightened our heart so that by faith we can believe and trust. We've been brought forth by the truth. Paul gives thanks to God for when the Thessalonians received the Word of God, they accepted it not as the Word of men, but actually for what it was what it is, the Word of God. Praise the Lord. We, we don't have to grope, folks. We don't have to grope. And it's so sad that we have one of these sitting on just about every coffee table in America. And yet we don't follow it. We don't look to it. And sometimes we even as believers can get caught up doing the same thing. Oh, how we need to have the Word of God Certainly in our lives. God has spoken. He's not silent. We don't have to grope about in the dark. All truth is God's truth because God is the source of all truth. He is referred to in Scripture as the Lord God of truth. The God of all truth. 
Psalm 89 and verse 14 says, Mercy and truth go before your face. You see, they're a part of God's truth, a part of who God is. True, being true is an attribute of God. It is innate with God. God can do... It's impossible for God to lie because He is truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Boy, does that, do those words ever hit home with me. I can remember when I was a young man, 17 years old, just come to know Christ, and I read those words for the first time. For me, the word truth stood out because I didn't understand what truth was. I didn't have the truth. And I groped in the dark. And I yearned to know the reason for everything and why I was on this earth and what the meaning of it all was. When I read those words that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, my heart was just exhilarated. The fact that I no longer had to grope. That this young man of 17 years old now knew what the truth was. It was in the very person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the source of all truth. The truth of the Lord endures forever. There's no shadow of turning with Him. He's not true today and not true tomorrow. He's always true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Psalm 119, 151, Your commandments are true. Daniel 4.37, All of God's ways and works are true. Whatsoever God doeth is just and right. So we are a people this morning who delight and rejoice in the truth of God. We desire to know what God has said because we, as Jesus said, we are a people that are of the truth. In Psalm 51, David said that you, as he prayed to the Lord, you, O God, desire truth in our inward parts, in our heart, in our soul. Because God is of the truth. God is absolutely true. We're a people of truth. He desires us to be seekers of the truth. David prayed, lead me, Lord, in your truth and teach me. We are to speak the truth in love to one another. We're to think about those things which are true. Things that are false don't edify. The things of God, the things that are true are the things that edify. John wrote in his third epistle, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Wow. That's God's desire for us. That we as His children love the truth, we walk in the truth, we encourage one another in the true things of God in order that we might build one another up in the truth. David's prayer should be our prayer. Teach me Your way, O Lord, that I may walk in the truth. But there's a problem, isn't there? We don't always do that. Because indeed we are at war with the world and the flesh and the devil. And this morning I think I want to focus more upon our war as children of God, but we still struggle with flesh, don't we? Our old nature, the old man. And it rises up against the truth.
and causes us not to want to obey the truth. So you see our very humanness sometimes is at odds with the truth. James says that we are drawn away by our own desires and are enticed. What is that? By our own flesh. That we are drawn away when that desire is conceived and it brings forth sin. And we see this happening on a grand scale today. We see it happening, first of all, nationally. The neglecting of the truth of the law of God is certainly evident in this nation today. As it was in the time of Judges. You know, in the the time of Judges, truth became very relative that everyone did that which was right in his own eyes. Because they put away the very standards. And in the book of Judges, you know, you, you have the people of Israel falling into sin and then the Lord sending discipline and judgment upon the people of God. Then they would repent, turn to the Lord and cry out to God for help and He would send a judge to lead them and to aid them. The major problem with the, book of, with the children of Israel in the book of Judges, they turned away from the truth of God and they fell into sin. Folks, the major problem with the United States of America is not economically, politically. The major problem is a moral, spiritual problem. That we've turned away from the only source of truth. Oh, that we, we're called upon to pray for our leaders. We did that this morning that we might live peaceable and godly lives in the world that we live in today, in this country. For the rest of our time, though, I want us to focus upon this issue, this war that's going on personally with the truth of God and how we are or we are not applying it to ourselves. And I want us to look at some some various uh, persons from the Old Testament as we see this. The Word of God tells us these things are written for our instruction. Turn your Bibles, please, to Ecclesiastes. Solomon, of course, being the, the writer of Ecclesiastes was on a journey himself to find peace in his heart. And he said, first of all, in chapter 1, that he sought out wisdom under heaven. Wisdom according to men. And that did not do him any good at all. In verse 18, he said, For in much wisdom is much grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. So then when we come to chapter 2, Solomon says, Well, maybe I will find enjoyment and peace if I seek out things that are very pleasurable. Now, it's not that Solomon says, I think I'll just become a complete hedonist and do all kinds of sinful things in order to find wisdom and peace. No, Solomon was too wise to even consider anything like that. He was not saying, well, I think I'll try the Epicurean philosophy for a while and see how that works. No, that was not the case. But he was... He, he was going to seek out pleasure. We could call the things that he was seeking neither immoral or 
moral, they were amoral. They were neither moral nor immoral. So he says there in chapter 2 and verse 1, that come now, I will test you, he says to himself, with myrrh, with pleasure. Therefore enjoy pleasure. But surely, he says, even in the beginning, he knows that pleasure, just for the sake of pleasure, is going to be vanity as well. And we have a list of all the things that Solomon looked into. He, he gratified his flesh with wine. Verse 4, he built houses and planted uh, vineyards. He made himself gardens and orchards. He, he uh, constructed water pools from which the water to grow the trees in the grove. Verse 7, he had male and female servants. He had greater possessions of herds and flocks than all that were in Jerusalem. More livestock than anyone else. He gathered silver and gold and special treasures of the kings and the provinces. He had male and female singers. He delighted himself with all types of musical instruments of all kind. By the way, verse 9, he excelled more than all who were before me in Jerusalem. He's still being guided by his wisdom, he says there. In essence, verse 10, he denied himself nothing that his eyes desired. He withheld nothing from his heart, any pleasure whatsoever. So what did he say there? What was the sum of all this? In verse 23, well, jump back to verse 17. What was the end of his pleasure-seeking? Therefore I hated life, because the work that was done under heaven was distressing to me, for all is vanity, a grasping after the wind. Pleasures for pleasure's sake brought him no peace. So he goes on to say there, Nothing is better in verse 24 than for a man that he should eat and drink and that his soul should enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw is from the hand of God. Verse 25, For God gives wisdom and knowledge and joy to the man who is good in his sight. Well, how do we know what good is if God has not spoken truth? Solomon says the only way you're going to find wisdom and peace is to live a good life based upon what? Based upon what is good as God sees it according to the truth of God. Pleasure won't do it. Jesus said, what if a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What good would that do you? Not any good. We sang this this morning. Isaac Watts, famous hymn, When I Survey the Wonders Cross. One stanza, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Child of God, believer in Christ, if, if you had a, a choice to receive the whole world right now, would you take it in lieu of the glorious salvation which we have in Christ? Were the whole realm of nature mine that were a present far too small? Love so amazing, love so divine demands my soul, my life, my all. Oh, I'd rather glory in the cross of Jesus Christ and have everything that this world can give unto me. And then I think uh, as well, you see, uh, what was this guy doing? He, he was trying to find truth based upon his feelings. David also. Let's turn back uh, 
to 2 Samuel. You know, God used David in a glorious, glorious way. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David was concerned that the Lord might have a place to dwell, a temple. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 8, Now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people of, of Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And you have and and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. God did glorious things, uh, things that David could not even imagine. He was a shepherd boy, and God called him to be the ruler of the nation of Israel. Now David desires to build the Lord's house, and, David, and God said, "No, it's not for you to do." That's for the one that will come after you. But I have established something far greater with you, David, because I have established with you my covenant. And your throne shall be a throne that will last forever. Through which the descendants of David, we've been celebrating this during Christmas time, that Christ was of the lineage of David and that His throne, His kingdom would never cease. Okay, God was doing these glorious things, and it was David's job, as it were, others uh, that when they went into the land of Canaan, they were to take over that land for the for the glory of God. And we we'll skip a bunch of uh, the material that I had picked out this morning, but flip over with me to Second Samuel, chapter ten, and verse eighteen. Just one instance of some of the great warfare that David was engaged in. Remember the, the women folk from the town would sing, what was the sing? They would sing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his tens of thousands. Chapter 10 and verse 18, Then the Syrians fled before Israel, and David killed seven... Actually, that, that is, uh, would probably be more accurate to read that 7,000 charioteers and 40,000 horsemen of the Syrians struck Shobach, the commander of the army, and he died there. Right here in this one battle, folks, 47,000 Syrians were killed. David's kingdom was a, a tremendous, vast kingdom. I should say God's kingdom at the hand of David. I did a little figuring myself during this study. The kingdom of Israel at this time was approximately 45,000 square miles. And God did that through a shepherd boy, you see. He was God's man. God, he was God's tool. God was accomplishing glorious things with David, subduing kingdoms, taking over that vast land of Canaan, Canaan and the surrounding area for the glory of God. David had fought his battles... And now, there's a measure of rest. And we come to chapter 11. Now we read in chapter 11, verse 1, that Joab had been sent out to do battle with the Ammonites. 
And it's mentioned there in the last little paragraph of chapter 11, verse 1. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now, that was very odd for David. By and large, David was on, always on the forefront. He was always leading his men into battle. For whatever reason, this day, he stayed home. He was resting. And then all of a sudden, perchance, in verse 2, then it happened, this came about this way, one evening, that David arose from his bed and walked around on the roof of the king's house. The roofs were flat there in the land of Judea. It was common practice. After one had had a meal, he would go out on top of the roof to be cooled uh, by the breeze. And there, when he was on top of his roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. He saw a beautiful woman taking a bath, and he did that which God would not have him do. He did not do, he did not carry out Job's philosophy. Job says, I have made a covenant with my, my eyes that, would not, that I would not sin against the Lord. David didn't do that. He kept admiring the beauty of Bathsheba. What should he have done? Walk away. The Bible says flee fornication. That's what Joseph did. He fled Potiphar's wife. But he tarried. He tarried for just a moment. And the more he looked, he began to think, what can I do to have this beautiful woman as my own? So David sent and inquired about the woman. In all probability, he was trying to find out what's the first thing a man does when he's thinking about a woman. Well, is she married? So he inquires about her. And someone said... Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Okay, David, now completely, totally, get this out of your mind. It's not what happened. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's valiant men, one of the greatest warriors in the kingdom. And then in verse 4, while Uriah was gone, he sent David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. For she was cleansed from her impurity, and she returned to her house. And in verse 5, the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. So you know the rest of the story. David conspired to have Uriah the Hittite killed. And when the prophet Nathan approached David in 2 Samuel chapter 12 in verse 9, this was the word of God through the prophet Nathan. You, David, verse 9, You despise the commandment of the Lord to do evil in His sight. You have killed, you David have killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and you have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. 
Verse 10, Therefore the sword shall never depart from your house. And from that point on, the household of David was in turmoil. The death of this child that was conceived illegitimately died. There was constant turmoil and division in his house. His family situation uh, was in constant trouble. There was rape within his, the members of his own family. A murderous rebellion. We could go on and on. Absolute chaos. What happened here? What happened here? You see, this was David, and we refer to David as a man after God's own heart. David, the writer of the vast majority of the Psalms, the singer in Israel, the man who, who loved God and was zealous to do the will of God. But it just happened that there was Bathsheba. And at that moment, there was something more important to David than the truth of God. There was something more important to him than honoring and obeying the Lord. If you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. You see, this is what happens where any time in our life, no matter how wise we are, we can fall away if we rely upon our human ingenuity or our own humanity, our own wisdom. For the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And yes, child of God, This man that was after God's own heart was also susceptible. And so are we. One of my favorite theologians was John Gill. This is what he said. He said, This is recorded for us to show us that even the best of men, when left to themselves, how strong and prevalent the corrupt nature is, even in regenerate persons. When... Grace is not an exercise. You see. When we are not relying upon the wisdom of God that comes forth from the truth of God, dispensed by the grace of God, we're subject to fall. And we can fall. That's why we must rejoice and rely upon the truth of God and not rely at all upon your human emotions. The human emotions are okay and they're wise and they're good, but we don't base reality based on what we feel. When we do, we're going to fall into error. And then there's another area which sometimes we are prone to fall away from the truth of God. And that's what happens when we simply do that which is expedient that which seems to be the best thing to do at the time. Let's turn now to 1 Samuel chapter 13. We think about the life of Saul. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 13, we'll, we'll just go over this very briefly. Samuel the judge had given explicit instructions to Saul that he was not to offer the sacrifice, but that he would be back in seven days. Well, the Philistines were encroaching upon the people of God, and Saul got very, very anxious. And he did not wait upon Samuel. And what did he do? He went ahead on his own, and he offered up the sacrifice of God. And when he did this, Samuel said, because you have done this and you have despised the Word of God, you have turned away from the Word of God, God is going to remove the kingdom from you. You know, in a game of basketball, a lot of times when you're in doubt, it's okay to go ahead and shoot. You know, you may score. But in the game of life, we need to look before we leap. I know I'm mixing my metaphors, but folks, we need to be vigilant in the game of life. We don't shoot from the hip. We don't do that which seems to be the best thing at the time without thinking it through, without meditating on it. Again, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Saul finds himself also in a difficult situation. The Lord had told him to go forth and destroy all of the the Amalekites. And in chapter 15 and verse uh, 3, God said to attack them, utterly destroy, destroy them, and all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Well, as the battle ensued, we read here that uh, Saul pushed the Amalekites far from their boundaries. And he destroyed many of the people. But in verse 8 we read that he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But we read on in the Scriptures that it was not a complete job because David had to pick up where Saul left over and he had to continually fight the Amalekites. Also, in verse 9, not only did he bring back Agag, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But those things which were despised and worthless, they did utterly destroy. So here Samuel is coming back to meet Saul... And we read there in in verse uh, uh, 11 that the Lord spoke to Samuel and was grieved that he would even made Saul king. king. And in verse 12, So Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he has set up a monument to himself. (laughs) See, Saul, Saul was full of himself. He always think, always resorted to what he felt was the thing to do. Well, what's the most expedient? And instead of, of hearing the word of God. Then Samuel, verse 13, went to Saul, and Saul said to him, 
Can't you just hear this? Blessed are you, the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, oh, What is this then, the bleeding of the sheep that I hear in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, Here's his excuse. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. See, we're doing it for noble reasons. We disobeyed the Word of God for noble reasons in order that we might sacrifice them to the Lord. Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And And he said to him, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go utterly and destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Samuel did not carry out that mission. He took from the spoil. He brought back Agag. And in verse 20, Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, it is better to obey than to sacrifice and to heed the fat of rams. Verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. And by the way, Saul in another tight situation, you know what I'm going to say, when the Philistines were attacking, what did he do? Instead of hearkening unto the word of the Lord and inquiring to the Lord, what did he do? He turned to a witch. He turned to a medium to find out what he should do. He was unfaithful to the Lord. So, verse 24, When Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words. Look look at this verse. Because I feared the people and I obeyed their voice. Just another incident, folks, that we cannot lean upon our own understanding, our own wisdom, our humanness, our ingenuity, or any of these things when we are going up against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And you know, we're, we're real comfortable here sitting in, in your pews and, and hearing the Word of God. But I tell you, when we get out there, it all changes, doesn't it? You know, that's where the rubber meets the road. And, and the big question is, are we taking the truths of God and incorporating them into our lives? Because we're all subject to fall into sin, to stray from the Lord if we're not living in the truth, if we're not studying the truth of God's Word, meditating upon it day and night. Isn't that what the psalmist said? If those who meditate upon the Word of God, they're going to be like the tree that's planted by the, the, the water, living waters. They're going to bring forth fruit. They're going to flourish. Not because we're good in ourselves, but because the, we are, the grace of God is active in, a, in us. And we're living according to the truth of the Word. And we've got to have it. We can't say, well, you know, I studied the Bible really hard last week and I just had a great time with the Lord. What happened to David? He subdued kingdoms. For the glory of God. But, you know, he needed the wisdom of God on that very day that he fell as well. You see, the, the, the Word of God 
In some instances, it's like the manna. The children of Israel had to gather the manna every day in order to find their sustenance. We have to dwell and live in the Word of God every day in order to find strength for today, for the trial that's coming. We cannot rely upon our human emotions. I was also going to mention to you the fact that two of the major emotions that come against us as children of God are also, besides this sin of presumption, besides this sin of just relying on what is expedient at the spur spur of the moment, is also the, the sin of anger and the sin of fear. We think of Moses who struck the rock. Why did Moses strike the rock? God said to Moses, just speak to the rock. And then God was going to do great things. But what was in the back of Moses' mind? Well, they'd come to the wilderness of Zen. The children of Israel had been complaining again. He had listened to their complaints and their grumblings and their murmurings for 38 years. And he'd had about enough of it. But the Lord said, Moses... Speak to the rock, and I'll do my thing. So what did Moses do? Instead of hearing the Word of God and doing explicitly what God said, Moses was reflecting upon how mad he was at these people, and he went forth and he said, You rebels, must we bring water out of this rock for you? And he struck the rock in his anger. And what did God say? Because you did not see fit to howl me in your eyes, you will not enter into the promised land. You see, God gave some very simple instructions, and Moses was consumed by his anger. He had this problem before, didn't he? When he slew the Egyptian, still had somewhat of a problem here, didn't he? And because of that issue of anger, you you mean it wasn't that kind of strict? No. God deserved the right to receive the glory of that incident completely to Himself. And Moses in his anger took away the glory of God by drawing attention to himself and also being angry with the people that he did not have a right to be angry with and referring to all of them as rebels. You see, So he sinned against the Lord. A few weeks ago, well, uh, this past week, we were studying in Numbers chapter 14 about how the children of Israel, when, when they came to Kadesh Barnea and the spies were sent out, what happened? Ten of the spies brought back an unfavorable report and said, there's no way we can go in there and take that. They were paralyzed by fear. And that fear was contagious. It went through the majority of the camp to the fact that they all turned away from God and God pronounced a judgment upon them. That all those that were under the age of 20 were then to walk in that wilderness for 40 years. A year for every day that the spies were in the land because of what? Because of their disobedience that was guided by fear. You see, they were crippled by that. So we cannot trust human emotions. We cannot rely upon ourselves. There's nothing in us that causes us to stand except the power that comes from God. The grace that comes from God. And how do we how do we receive that? Well, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. 
That we study the Word in order that we might gain wisdom and understanding. How do we discern the will of God? No, it's not through having some vision. It's not through looking at the circumstances. It's not through putting out a fleece and saying, well, Lord, if, if, if this happens, then I'll know that I'm not supposed to do that. Or, Lord, if this happens, then that means I should go and do that. You see? Absolutely not. Gideon was given the sign of, of a fleece because of his lack of faith. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Children of God. Boy, I've learned this the hard way, as, as, as some of you have too. How do we gain the knowledge and wisdom of God? It's by knowing the truth of God. By living out the truth of God. You can't open the Bible and, and it says, you are to marry this person. You can't open the Bible and it says, you are to take this job. You are to go and live in this city. No, we're to take the Word of God and apply the wise principles from the Word of God in order that we may please the Lord. And here's another aspect of this truth. We don't walk around and say, well, I know there's a Christian. I need to read my Bible. And I need to study the truth. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. That's the right thing to do. I'm going to stoically do it. I'm going to study the Bible. <laughs> is, is that the kind of attitude we're supposed to have? No. Again, Jesus said in John chapter, chapter 17, Lord, sanctify them by Your Word. Your Word is truth. And He said that. Why did He say that? One of the major reasons Jesus said that, why He was so concerned that His followers might be set aside, sanctified by the truth was that, according to Jesus' prayer, that they might have My joy fulfilled in them. You see, God's commandments are not burdensome. God has given us His Word, His truth, His commandments in order that we might have joy, in order that He might keep us from a multitude of sins and errors. That we might have peace with Him. That we might have the joy of pleasing Him. The joy of walking in the truth. John said, I have no greater joy to know that my children are walking in the truth and the blessings that God wants for us if we follow Him, if we keep His Word if we keep His truth. Oh, that we might not be in our life. As the writer of the Proverbs said, concerning one who relied upon his own emotion, who relied upon his own lust, who who relied upon his own desires, that at the end of his life he was ensnared by his godly lifestyle and he brought a tremendous amount of burdens, health issues, and all kinds of problems upon himself. And then that person would say, Oh, how I hated instruction and my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to those who have instructed me. May those words not come upon our lips. And if we have failed in our lives, repent, turn from self, 
your feelings, your emotions, your human ingenuity and cast yourself fully upon the Lord, upon His wisdom and upon His truth which gives us joy. Father in Heaven, we pray Your Spirit would work in our lives, God, that we, as a hymn writer said, Father, we're prone to wander. Oh God, here's our hearts. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for Thy courts above. Father, work in each life here. And may Your will be done. Where there's need of repentance and turning from a lifestyle, may You give that person the grace to do that and the joy of knowing You and following You. We pray this in Christ's holy name. Amen.